So in the fast-growing world of cryptocurrencies, there are all sorts of coins and all sorts of functions from your Bitcoin to your Ethereum. And that's a very big group of cryptocurrencies out there known as stable coins. Essentially, it means they don't really fluctuate, right? They hold a stable value and they are used as a medium of transaction. So with the advent of stable coins today, it's kind of like the dream of Bitcoin, right? Where price is stable, a lot of people want to own it, and it is decentralized. So wow, that, that is like pipe dream come to life, right? But more importantly is a lot of new applications can be built on this idea of stable coins. And that is what we're going to talk about today. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to another Chills with TFC session. In this series, we hope to bring on interesting, relevant people to help us learn better from various perspectives. Life is not always about learning from people that you already agree with. Perspectives shape a rounder thinker. So in our pursuit of the life we love or managing our finances, well, our guest for today is the techie behind Singapore's first and only stable coin backed by MAS. He and his team participated in the famous Y Combinator to nurture their startup and went on to process millions of dollars SGD daily before their bank account was shut down. They are now the only ones in the game and have some very interesting thoughts about stable coins and the future of cryptocurrency. So let's welcome Mr. Victor Liu from Xverse. So I want to kind of hear your... Because I'm a fundamentalist. I'm, I'm not a tactician, right? So I know people mm. that trade the market and, you know, they, they draw the, the mm. curve, they draw the lines, they do their thing, yes. they do their magic. Okay, so that's their thing. But as a fundamentalist, you know, I want to know what is the base case. You know, why does this thing have value for me to, you know, participate in. Of course, uh, I also get it that the crypto space is huge, right? So we just mm. narrow down to Bitcoin first. Later, we can talk about the other things, mm-hmm. All right? So then why do you think Bitcoin is too big to fail? Right. Okay, so if you, if you look at the current asset class right now, what an asset class that, you know, cannot really be manipulated by a government, right? Or being controlled by the government. Right? If you look at um, go go exists in the physical world, right? So there's this possibility of like uh, government seizure, uh, government control, or let's say, you know, and we look at Myanmar right now, it's being controlled by the military, right? So certain cases like go as a class, I mean, the government can still control it. Um, but if you look at Bitcoin, for example, right, it's decentralized. So it's not something that uh, government regulation can control. Uh, and by control also means that you cannot inflate it, you know, government cannot print on its beam. Go as well cannot be printed on beam, but I mean, it's still can be controlled. Um, so other asset class, maybe property or real estate or land, um, those also are areas where you know, the government cannot just simply print more of that, right? Um, but however, it still can be controlled by government, right? It still can be seized from you if necessary. That's not true for Bitcoin, right? If you have a Bitcoin in an anonymous wallet, it's very hard for our government to kind of take that away from you, yeah. right? As long as you have uh, internet connection. And right now, I mean, we even have like some areas in the rural village in the world I mean, being broadcasted internet um, through satellites, right? So as long as you have internet, you get access to... Uh, cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and you can exchange uh, value. Mm. And for that to happen, I think Bitcoin has come a long way um, for like maybe $1 per Bitcoin all the way to like right now 50k per Bitcoin. Yeah, for sure. Nobody, nobody would have imagined this honestly. Right. Yeah. So when I say Bitcoin is too big to fail, I mean like um, can someone take down that network? 
mm, and mm. equivalently how much trust the human race have um, on Bitcoin itself. So uh, let's look at the first, the first one. Uh, can someone take over the network, right? Um, at the start, when Bitcoin was launched, uh, there were only like maybe three miners, right, to secure a network. So if I own two computers out of the three computer nodes in the Bitcoin network, naturally I can take over the network, right? I can broadcast any kind of transactions I want and then I accept myself. So over time, this has changed. Uh, more and more nodes get added. Um, right now, if you want to take over the entire Bitcoin network, you need have 51% voting rights. And to do that, you probably need to have 51% out of the 1 trillion market cap. Uh, income of capital like to buy mining rigs, equipment. You find you need to find a place where you have enough power to go and like mine enough Bitcoin to kind of take over the yeah, network. Yeah. So when I say too big to fail, um, that is one which is specifically towards can I take over the network? Right. So once the network is secure, next is basically um, the human race trust in this asset class. Right. If you look at gold, it's only used in three percent of the world's manufacturing uh, process, for example, and Somehow, I mean, the humans just trust it because of its historical nature. In the past, people use it to trade. Um, it's, it's like fungible, it's divisible, you know, and basically the, the gold itself will not corrode. You know, it lasts very, very long. So that's why I think there's all these properties that kind of attract the, the human race to kind of trust it. And, you know, we confer value to gold, right? And that's why we trust each other. Hey, yeah, I can transact this with you securely. You give me some gold, I'll give you something in value. Mm. So right now, when I say Bitcoin is too big to fail from the value perspective, um, it has reached one trillion dollars in market cap. That would signify a certain amount of human trust, right? We trust that asset class. That's why we have in, uh, comfort to it certain um, value. And right now the value is at one trillion dollars, right? So it has reached a point where I think it has been growing. Uh, more and more people are trusting it. So I think you only reach a kind of a network effect where it grew exponentially and mm. as more and more people trust it and put their money in. Automatically, you become of an asset class itself. Simply by nature of like, one, it cannot be taken over the network. Number two, um, just increasing trust that we have. Yeah. Okay. So, so you are subscribed to the asset class uh, argument, uh, essentially, right? Mm. To to push, you know, Bitcoin to become a, a digital asset, right? You 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 believe in that. What about the whole currency? Um, discussion, you know, generally there's two two groups of discussion, right? One group is mm. the whole digital gold asset yes, class yes. Uh, kind of thing, right? <laughs> so it becomes an asset class. It will eventually get regulated, eventually get taxed somehow, mm. you know. But it is here to stay. So that's one group of discussion. The other guys, which are a little bit even crazier, talks about like, you know, replacing the current you know financial system. So I, I I'm curious, what do you think about the other discussion about Bitcoin potentially replacing the current monetary system? Um, yeah, mm. what what are your thoughts? Um, so to be to be honest, I'm mentioning about Bitcoin replacing currency itself, mm, right? Mm, mm, mm. Um, so to that, I have several thoughts. Um, I think one, Bitcoin is too volatile for it to be a currency, right? So if I send you one Bitcoin today for payments, um, I do not know whether by the time it reaches you, the, the value will drop ten percent or <laughs> yeah, like ten yeah, percent, yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> Yes, so yes. I'm, <coughs> I'm, I'm, I'm quite amazed of some people that are willing to take Bitcoin for their projects and for their business. Yeah, exactly. Like, wow, bro, Kaula, you're strong. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, I don't think Bitcoin would be a very useful means of um, payments right now simply because of the high volatility. And I mean, the price fluctuates too much. Right? Mm. But however, maybe let's take a look at maybe 50 years later um, <clears throat> when the market cap, you know, reaches way, way above like maybe 100 times the current one. So much so that, you know, each fluctuation, 1% fluctuation will cost too much money to move. Right now, it's only $1 trillion. So 
in terms of like fluctuating um, at a rate of 5%, it doesn't take a lot of money to move Bitcoin right now. Right, simply because the market cap is so small. It's just one trillion dollars, right? So I would expect maybe in 50 years later when the market cap is maybe 100 times that, right? The amount of money required to move the price of Bitcoin as an asset uh, drops so drastically that it becomes a possible form of payments. Fair. Yeah. So that alone, we do not know whether that will happen. Mm. Right. So I would say, but right now, definitely not. It will not mm-hmm. uh, replace currency. Yeah. And the next is, of course, um, the transaction fee itself right now. I think Bitcoin to be used as payments, I think payments requires um, an extremely low transaction fee at a very, very fast speed. Right for you to transact. So like imagine I send you PayLa, a PayLa payment, right? And immediately it goes through, it's free and it's instant. Right. It'll take a while. I think probably it take a lot, a lot of protocol changes before Bitcoin actually achieve that. Mm. Which I mean fifty years later, you know, we never know whether that's possible. And if that occurs then yeah, great. Perhaps Bitcoin could be um, the currency. Mm. Yeah. So so what are some of the protocol changes that you think need to change for it to have that kind of functionality? <laughs> Mm. Oh, so previously one of the protocol changes was like the SegWeek system where they kind of allow more uh, Bitcoin transactions to be parked per, per block to be mined, right? Um, so just trying to help me understand, yeah? Okay, just speak, ah, okay. In, speak in layman term, ah? okay. Okay, yeah, yeah so <laughs> uh, to, to put it in layman terms, yes, uh, layman. protocol changes would need to include uh, basically allowing the miners to process more transactions, right, per block than what is currently possible right now. So basically, your volume of transaction process per second will increase, thereby um, costing less each time to send, right? And possibly also increasing uh, the speed to mine uh, each block. So then the transaction could be processed. I think right now the Bitcoin processing speed, um, I mean, I, just, I sent some Bitcoin yesterday to test it out around, it's around 10 minutes, which is a bit uh, slow in my opinion, right? Mm-hmm. When compared to PayLa, when I send you today is instantaneous. instantaneous right? Yes. Right? So I'm not too sure whether someone would want to wait ten minutes versus instantaneous, mm. right? So and you're not change. sure what's the price after ten minutes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. So you send it. Uh, ten minutes is actually a huge. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, a, it's long a long time. time. Frame, yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. So that that's a problem, lah. And mm. I think protocol changes that would make it instantaneous, reduce fees, mm. uh, would make Bitcoin a bit more attractive. To be okay. used as payments, yeah. Okay. So for everyone that don't know uh, these kind of things, right? We have no no much clue in this space. How do protocol changes happen? Mm. So, a protocol changes happen when um, is that like a voting system? Yes, okay. yes. So for a protocol change to happen, you need the majority of the miners to kind of agree to that change. Mm. So mm. for example, um, so previously I mentioned like you know the security network you need a 51% vote before a protocol change can happen. Yes. So when someone introduces a new patch to the Bitcoin algorithm, for example, or the Bitcoin software, you need to garner the consensus of all the miners, at least 51% vote. that say, hey, okay, we agree to vote and put this software in. And then 51% of miners agree, implement this patch. The rest have to follow. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay. So this is how a protocol change usually get proposed and get implemented. Mm. Yeah. It's a long, it's a very lengthy process la, to get everyone involved. Okay, yeah. 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 I, I'm starting to see it, okay? The beauty of it. But you guys are not like, so specifically for you guys, right? Mm. You guys are super big on the whole stable coin thing. Right? I mean, that's that's where probably your biggest business is at at this moment in time. Right? You guys are the mm-hmm. first issuers, you know, of, of the SG stable coin. Yes. Right? Yeah. So then what is stopping the stable coin from replacing that function? You know, you're trying to paint a picture that Bitcoin eventually can do the payment processing, right? Mm. But actually, you can already use the stable coin to do it, right? Yeah, that's right. Right? With cheaper, faster, no fluctuation. That's the whole idea. Or limited fluctuation. That's the whole idea behind stable coin. So then, doesn't that remove the need for Bitcoin to be that functional? Mm. Right? And then the stablecoin can just kind of eat the market up, right? Yes. Um, so what you say is true uh, because it will take a long time before Bitcoin can reach the state where it could be used as payments. Um, and the thing is that we, we never know whether it could actually you know, reach that point. So in between from now to that point where Bitcoin is able to be a form of payment, um, other means right, of achieving payments uh, has been born and created. Uh, for example, stablecoin is one prime example, right? So, stablecoin was created as a mean, you know, for last in the back in time, long, long time ago, where traders, you know, they want to basically arbitrage between exchanges, right? And or they want to do market making, right? So, back then, um, basically, they would sell an asset class on my exchange and then basically buy an asset class on exchange to market make or to arbitrage, whatever. Um, they would have to rely on the traditional fiat uh, banking system, right? Which would take probably two or three days um, to settle, right? So every time I buy, I cash out to a bank, then the bank I deposit to another one. And but then, then the arbitrage no more already. Yeah, but then, <laughs> yeah, it's no more. And then it's, it's probably take a lot of time. Right? So usually what they do is that they just keep a huge amount of like float on both sides, mm. which is capital inefficient. Mm. For everyone that don't know what is arbitrage, essentially is when two markets have a different price, but they're selling the same thing. So you're yeah. trying to make uh, advantage of like buying from the cheaper side and sell at a more expensive side, okay? Yes, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so they realized that, hey, you know, we cannot rely on the traditional banking system, you know, SWIFT transfer, wire transfer, it's going to take a long time. So along with that, um, stablecoin was born. The very first one was like USD Tether. Right. So they realized that you know, if we can actually put uh, a token equivalent of the US dollars, right, which is what we know now as stablecoin, and put an exchange, uh, what traders can do is actually cash out and sell a Bitcoin or buy a Bitcoin um, using the token itself, which is USD Tether. And after you buy and sell, the movement of USD Tether over to another exchange is actually quite fast. The first incarnation was on the ERC20 Ethereum blockchain. Um, but right now there's many of it already. Um, Tether was also born on the Omni chain, etc. Yeah, so basically it allows uh, instantaneous, close to instantaneous movement of uh, funds within like five minutes, mm. depending on how much gas fee you pay. La, yeah, to okay. other exchanges. So other help trash. me understand what do you mean by born on a born on a blockchain? Yes. Ah, okay. So how a stablecoin is created is that usually you have a bank account. Um, the bank account you usually be hold in trust. Right, and then for every one dollar of the US dollars on the blockchain itself, I must have a corresponding uh, one dollar in a trust bank account. Mm. So if I want to have, uh, if I want to mint ten million uh, USD Tether stablecoin, 
I need to have $10 million in my trust bank account. And the trust bank account needs to be ring fast, like it cannot be touched. You know, to kind of get the guarantee the sanctity of like, okay, I guarantee that there's 10 million um, tether on the blockchain itself. If not, this would just be printing money, right? Yes. Like just creating tokens out of nowhere. Yes. And that would lead to people not trusting the tokens altogether. Mm. Yeah. So that's how, you know, a stable coin is being born and created. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And you know, recently in the the whole tether thing, right? I mean, okay, not that recently, there's, there's been this whole like, you know, shammy discussion around tether, right? Fundamentally, mm. if you think about it, it challenges the belief of decentralization because you are trusting a central party, which is the guys behind the tether, mm. you know, to, to manage a sub-ecosystem within the bigger ecosystem of cryptocurrency, mm. right? Mm. So you're creating a central power within, within this ecosystem and they recently got sued. Right. You right. know, I think it was New York, the attorney right. general, they right. sued right. them, right? Fundamentally for this problem, you know, mm. um, what, what, what are your thoughts on this? Like, will decentralization actually work as this thing become bigger and, you know, market monopolies start to happen and then, you know, people centralize is, is, is an eventuality in, in every market. It tends to have, mm. you know, power tends to centralize. So, so how, how do you see this based on the case of Tether being sued? Ah, okay. In the case of Tether, right, uh, just interestingly enough, yesterday I read a news on Coindesk, um, the case was settled. They, mm. they pay a fine. And basically, the New York Attorney General certified that, okay, there's nothing wrong with USD Tether. That possibly gave a huge boost to the community that, hey, you know, uh, the USD Tether company is not trying to do anything funny. Mm. Um, previously, there was, there was this whole fear-mongering around, like, hey, you know, the company Bitfinex and Tether are intrinsically linked, you know, and colluding mm, mm, to mm. cover up a massive $1 billion yes. loss, yes. etc. Right. So there was a huge... And then also there's also basically a few mongering going on that, hey, you know, um, right now there's 34 billion USD tether on the blockchain. And many people claim that, hey, you know, maybe they do not have $34 billion in the bank account. Yeah, because that's the base yeah. uh, you know, idea of a, of a stable coin, right? They must have a one-to-one match. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So uh, the allegation has uh, been dismissed yesterday. Uh, it was, the news has been published that the NYAG has not found anything. I miss. Okay, good. So, yeah, I'm just quite happy to hear that because I have a couple of holdings on USD Tether. Mm. Uh, that means, that means it gives me back trust la, that there's a one-to-one um, pack to that. Right. So, to your point on centralization of such things happen, I think it's a nice compromise between the incumbent fiat world, right, and the blockchain world. Mm. Right now, there needs to be a transition phase towards that. So, that kind of represents the bridge, right, be- helping people from the fiat world to go towards the decentralized um, blockchain world. Right? So the token was born as a result of that. Right? Because you cannot interact with smart contracts or decentralized finance happening on a blockchain on a smart contract without a tokenized uh, version of your fiat representative. Right? So before we can transit to like a full, fully pure tra- decentralized system, uh, a bridge like this must happen first. Of course, there are other um, solutions, stablecoin solutions. Uh, they are called algorithmic stablecoin. So algorithmic stablecoin is a stablecoin backed by a cryptocurrency asset class or for example, a Bitcoin. Mm. So uh, one prominent example of this is the DAI stablecoin. So the DAI stablecoin to mean a DAI stablecoin, uh, you need to have an equivalent amount of asset backed by Ethereum. And then you can print uh, the DAI stablecoin. So you see, right, the analogy is for the USD Tether, you need to have one US dollar in the bank account before mm. you can print one uh, USD Tether. So for the DAI, you need to have, uh, let's say you want to print $1 of DAI, you need to have uh, 
maybe one dollar thirty cents of Ethereum. Yes. In fact, it's a bit more lah. Uh, it's it's slightly more because the price of Ethereum fluctuates a lot, so it kind of give you a buffer a bit. Mm. Yeah. So this would basically be the decentralized version of stablecoin. Mm. Yeah. If people want the decentralized version. Yes. And then who governs this thing then? Like you were saying about like one USD to you know one tether mm. and then one uh, 1.3 Ethereum to one Dai. Right, that's kind of that's kind of where it is, mm-hmm. right? And the idea is because Ethereum is more volatile, that's why you you have a premium, you know, on that pack essentially. Yeah. Right. But who governs this thing? How 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 do we make sure that this exists and and this works? Mm. So for USD Tether, which is like backed by a trust company, um, usually such an arrangement would require a company um, that is like not controlled by any entity, an independent company and consortium or organization, for example. And then they will probably engage uh, a trust company or if that's not possible, um, a bank to do a banking agreement with. And then they will need to hire auditors and like lawyers to kind of regularly certify yes, that yes. there's indeed a pack, mm, right? Mm, before mm. before everyone in the world can trust them. Yeah, for sure. And USD Tether has committed to basically releasing statements every quarter to kind of prove that there's a one-to-one pack. Uh, that's one arrangement. Um, similar arrangement would be like the USDC, uh, which is a competitor to the USD Tether. So what they do is that they have a consortium as well, independent consortium, non-profit. Um, they will basically certify have auditors coming and check their books to make sure that everyone USDC, that's going to be a $1 back at the bank account, certified yes. by a third-party accredited auditor. Um, for us, what we do for Singapore stablecoin is that we are regulated by MES actually. So we, I think we are the only stablecoin where it's directly regulated by government. So USDC and USDT is not uh, regulated and controlled by the government. Mm. So They're for using us, a custodian arrangement. To correct. Do that. So, yeah. but okay. there's nothing, you know, the, the, the White House basically never said, oh, it's yeah. something that you regulate you, et cetera, right? Yes. Um, for us, it's a bit different. Um, we are regulated by government and we also have a banking service agreement with a bank to hold that in trust. And we also have third-party auditors. So this three comes together to kind of like make sure that you no know, nothing goes wrong when we kind of um, print stable coins. If not, just be printing money, right? Which I think MES will not be happy with. Just of course, you're eating creating their, money out yeah, of nowhere. Yeah, eating their business. Right? Correct, correct. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So these are the two main different ways to regulate this and kind of like uh, make sure that no one is you know happy happy come in and just release their own stable coin. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And for the algorithmic stable coin. Usually, this is controlled by a decentralized autonomous organization. Um, to put it in a layman's term, it's kind of like people who participate in this community will kind of vote on like the changes on on this protocol itself. So things involve like uh, recently there was a vote to decide, hey, you know, should we increase the fees for minting dai, for example, right? What's the interest rate? So these are things that the community will decide and vote and decide the future of the. Algorithmic stablecoin. Yeah, so you can see the difference between a centralized one and then the decentralized one. The decentralized one usually is powered by the algorithm, the smart contracts, and the community voting on it, mm. right, to make sure that nothing's happened. Whereas in the traditional fiat, you know, back trust based company, it's usually regulated by auditors, your lawyers, or yes. in our case, even the government. Yes. Yeah, so that's the main difference. Okay, okay. I can see the beauty in, in this, right? Like, mm. Because, okay, in our current world, there's a lot of uh, organizations built behind this whole trust idea. You know, mm. where they're here as a clearinghouse, they're here as an interim to make sure that you are following the law. You are following what society deems as, okay, this is, this is, 
the standard, right? So you have your lawyers, you have your auditors, you have you know your medical professionals. All these are clearing houses mm. in their respective field. Uh, so eventually, you know, um, if blockchain becomes very, very, very you know prevalent where everybody can can use it, then it, it paints a very different picture in terms of how the future of you know um, trust can be built in our society. Essentially, I think there is a lot of beauty there. Mm. But I'm curious, like, what are your thoughts just on the idea of stable coins as the base, right? Where can this um, crypto future develop? Okay. What I'm trying to understand from your question is what kind of financial possibilities or like interesting financial applications yes. that can be arise, yes. you know, when we have programmable money such as stable coin. Yes, right? yes. Um, I think if you look at the de- decentralized finance space, i.e. financial applications, coded on smart contracts, right? Running on the blockchain, which is, which is basically another lingo for basically uh, software uh, running on a blockchain system. Yes. Right? Previously, you have software running on a traditional server hosted by Amazon Web Services. Yes. Right? But now you have software running on the blockchain itself, mm. right? which is decentralized. You which cannot... is a web of, essentially a web of computers. Exactly. Yes. Right? So... Uh, I would see that the future 10 years, uh, you'll see a migration of space from what a centralized um, provider and centralized uh, financial software system could provide and migrating over to the decentralized space, right? So example, um, you have your exchanges, right? Let's say your Bitcoin exchanges, your stock exchanges. Um, right now, we have an equivalent exchange on the decentralized world. An example of this would be your Uniswaps, your <coughs> one inch. All these are like the equivalent uh, of the exchanges. Mm. So Binance is not the same. Yeah, Binance is not the same. So Binance is a centralized system. So Binance will host their servers on Amazon Web Services, mm. on traditional servers. They have full control over who can buy and sell. Mm. Right? Mm. If they if they do not like you, they can quite possibly delete your they account. They can veto and, you, right? Essentially. Right, and you mm. cannot trade there. Right? But that's not the same on a decentralized uh, exchange such as Uniswap, right? The moment you connect your wallet, that's it. They... Decentralized finance does not discriminate who you are, right? Mm. Your race, who you are, like whether you are legally allowed to do this. As long as you have internet connection, you have a um, <coughs> wallet, you connect to it, you can trade. And that's the beauty of it. So I would see a lot of this kind of um, centralized finance moving over. Uh, another example would be like the insurance space. So you have, uh, previously you have a centralized policy writer to kind of write, okay, you know, accident insurance. Right, I'll determine the premium, I'll determine like who gets to pay out, etc. Um, already we are seeing some form of it taking place in a decentralized finance world. Uh, an example of this would be like Nexus Mutual. Um, there'll be a community of people who kind of like decides on what's the premium, uh, can a certain payout be be done. Right. So a lot of more of this, but basically move on, like whatever you can think of, robo-advisors, maybe your hedge funds manager. So like right now we have like uh, mutual funds being released, right? Everybody can buy mutual funds. So already we see some of that happening also in the decentralized phase. Right? You can easily start the fund on um, the DeFi world and then just run it, right? Anyone who has internet connection can just connect to it. Yeah. So I would imagine uh, we are moving towards that space and stablecoin actually kind of powers that movement. Right? Because a lot of it what happened, it needs, to, it needs to be a transition phase like, for people to start moving the money in the fiat world and the centralized world over to the decentralized finance world. So previously, I pro- probably um, invest some amount, some amount of money into like traditional robo-advisory, like uh, maybe Singapore, we call it Stash Away, right, for example. Mm. 
Mm. And then now I'm actually parking some of my money over on the DeFi uh, smart yield products, right? There's, there's many of that. Lah, right? This goes by in very interesting names like Harvest Finance, uh, Unagi Vault. Yeah, ha- Harvest Moon. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so the uh, DeFi phase is a bit interesting. The phase that there's a lot of quirky new funds and names going on. It mm. allows you to basically, um, yes, all of them accept stable coins, right? Then you can put there, then they'll help you manage your money for you. Yes. Yeah. So this is where I see the future going towards. Cool, cool. I, 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 I like what you are painting. You know, I, I think there's a lot of potential here for sure because I see a lot of problems with the traditional way of running things, right? But I'm still a little concerned about um, decentralization as a whole, right? Um, because fairly utopian in some ways, right? Mm. It's, it's a lot of trust within the community and it's a lot of... Uh, um, Essentially, it's like a bigger world kind of thing, right? Mm. Where, where you trust the community mm. and then you kind of regulate yourself. There's no, there's no like big brother in this space, you know, mm. for, for like a better way to put it, right? So can you help me understand like why is decentralization so sexy, you know, to you guys? Mm. Although you guys are doing stable coins, yeah, you know, yeah. It's, it's, you're kind of like stuck in between leveraging yes, yes. on the traditional financial world and trying to bridge to the digital world, right? So being in between, you know, how do you see decentralized? Mm. It's interesting because um, the reason why we choose to be in between because we think that uh, it's going to take a long, long time because before everyone transits over uh, to the de- decentralized world, right? And I mean, if you look at internet and you look at television, it doesn't entirely wipe out the radio <laughs> radio world, right? People are still listening to radio. <laughs> as much as what everyone says, like, you know, yeah. television, internet, Yes, yes, media. yes. Radio is still a thing, yes. Right, radio, radio is still a thing. Mm, podcast is a bigger thing now. Yes, exactly. That's yeah. why you're on the podcast. <laughs> exactly. Yes, awesome. <laughs> so we still believe that um, we, there needs to be a bridge la, between the, the traditional world and on the decentralized world. And I think these two worlds would coexist um, mm. for a long time because true, I mean, decentralized is actually, you know, is great. Um it enables things that previously is not possible. For example, um, if a company right now in US or Brazil, right, or Vietnam uh, wants to come to Singapore and to start a business, right, and they want to accept um, payments for it, previously what they need to do is to come here, incorporate a company, um, apply for a bank account, you know, and then accept money through the bank account and then later remit it back to their home country, their own, own currency. This whole process will take a very long time. Very expensive right? also. And, I mean, Singapore is really easy to incorporate. But if you try incorporating in Indonesia, it will take you at least three months. <laughs> I, I know what you mean. <laughs> right. So these are examples of countries where it's not so easy to incorporate and it's not so easy to get back account. And also depending on the type of business that you do, um, they will not like you. Mm. And also for like specifically for financial technology, um, if you were to want to do a fintech startup in Indonesia, for example, or in Taiwan. Um, it's a very sensitive thing. The banks may not want to work with you. Yes. Right. So imagine you incorporate in Taiwan and then you say, hey, you know, I'm doing this new interesting cryptocurrency business. I want to open a bank account and I receive money, accept money, right? Mm. Taiwan dollars for it. To them, um, it's too interesting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> too fashion forward. <laughs> too interesting. Correct. So, Cannot work with you guys. Exactly. The bank will not want to work with you. <laughs> yes. And what mm. they'll do is usually they open a bank account and then notice the transaction. If it hits a certain volume, they'll shut you down. Mm. They'll write a letter and say, hey, okay, sorry, we cannot do business with you with no other reasons provide, provided. Mm. right? Simply because you're a threat to your existing business model 
Or maybe because they think that you're too risky or they don't understand your business. Or it's too costly to understand your business. <laughs> so right now, a lot of uh, this innovation cannot happen because you know this whole process takes a long time. Um, but this is different if you have like stablecoin coming existent, right? So right now, if a company, uh, back to my example of like a US company or a Vietnam company, they want to come to Singapore to accept payments, they can accept payments through a stablecoin. So in our case, maybe a Singapore stablecoin. They accept them payments, you know, and then to remit it back, they can go to a decentralized exchange such as Uniswap, swap it back to US dollars, stablecoin, and remit it back. And then they can get it into their base currency. So the time for them to enter markets has reduced drastically from months to maybe days, right? And this would basically uh, be a worldwide phenomenon in each country that adopt this new form of like uh, financial payments. Lah. Yes. Yeah. So you enable innovation to take place at a very rapidly uh, extorting rate. I get it. I yeah. get it. I get the whole idea of like all with the stable coin being prevalent, you know, as a stable currency, it allows for a lot of innovation in this space, right? Then why are you still so positive about the Bitcoin future? Why can't the interim be a stable coin, you know, and, and Bitcoin just kind of fades out as that prototype of the beginning? You know, it started this way. It, it created, you know, this whole movement and, you know, all so much money in this space, you know, and without it, it's probably very hard to enable a lot of all this innovation over time. But why can't it just fade out and, you know, because it's not innovating already in that sense. Mm-hmm. Mm, I think if I take a look at the cryptocurrency world and the value creation, right? Let's take a look at the value creation, right? How much benefit it brings um, to us. So cryptocurrency world, I would see... Bitcoin and maybe to a certain extent, uh, Litecoin are like storage of value where it's not um, it's not prone to inflation. And that means you cannot just print more Bitcoin whenever you want. Right. So there's some value of that. So I basically back to the back to my original proponent of like Bitcoin as an asset class on itself, right? To basically represent a store of value for people, right? And then on the other hand, um, we look at value creation point of view. Will be basically software smart contracts running on a blockchain itself um, that give us the value, right? So actually these are very two different usage of cryptocurrency as a whole. So that's why because of it, you know, I do not think it will fade away because it's just two different things, right? It's just apple and oranges. Mm. Yeah, and I think both of them can coexist to give us different kind of values. So that's why I do not think it will become just simply fade away and disappear. Right, it, it helps. It basically helps us to achieve different things, lah. Right, for example, storage of value and cannot be seized. Most importantly, cannot be seized. Mm. Right, right now I can't think of any asset class where, you know, it cannot be seized and it cannot be inflated, and people have trust in that system. Mm. And so far, Bitcoin is the only one that I see, like, you know, that has all those properties, lah. Yeah. Okay. So that's why I don't think so. Okay. Cool. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you. I hope you learned something useful today and truly appreciate that you took time off to better your life with the financial coconut. Knowledge is that much more powerful and interesting when shared, debated and discussed. Join our community telegram group, follow us on our social, sign up for our weekly newsletter. Everything is in the description below. And if you love us, will help us grow, definitely share the podcast with your friends and on your socials. Also, if you have some interesting thoughts to share or know someone that you want to hear more from, reach out to us through hello at thefinancialcoconut.com. With that, have a great day ahead. Stay tuned next week and always remember personal finance can be chill clear and sustainable for all
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, okay, so for every guest that come on the show, mm-hmm. um, we're going to ask three questions, you know, for every guest, same ones. So I'm going to ask you, are you ready? Yeah, sure. Okay, so the first question is, um, what is the core life principle that you hold close to? Mm, mm, I think one of the life principles I, call, I, I really believe in is basically how can I improve myself uh, on a daily basis? At the same time, I want to help people to improve as well. Mm. Right. So what I mean by improving myself every day, um, it would be like reading something of uh, in- interest that, I may not even know of. For example, I'm, for example, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a software engineer by trade, but at the same time, I also read up on marketing materials. Uh, I'm interestingly very curious about different things. You know how business development works, um, how to generate sales, and I mean recently, I'm also trying to figure out the world of social media. I'm trying to basically <laughs> see how can I build my Twitter following, build my Instagram following. Yes. Yeah, because I find it, I, f- I find it very am- uh, amazing that you know someone can actually come in here after a prolonged period of time, you know, build a huge followers. I, that's something that I cannot wrap myself, my head around. And because I'm a software engineer, right? I'm like, I deal with code every day. But when it comes to areas like social media, etc. Like influence, all those kinds yeah, of stuff. Yeah, I really do not know how they do that. And that, that basically compels me to try to improve myself. And how can I get towards that and, and learn this, you know? Yeah, so at the same time, I also believe in helping people. So as much as possible, um, it's not just me who improve, right? I want to form a network of people who are like constantly looking at improving themselves, upgrading themselves. And by doing that, I'm in a network of people who like, you know, hold each other mutually accountable and, you know, hey, you know, have you learned this? Have you read this? Have you seen this new crypto projects, right? So as long as I build myself up and I build everyone around me up, um, I feel like I can really, you know, progress as a human being, right? And to improve myself. Nice. Awesome. Um, question number two is, um, what is a personal finance advice that you feel needs to be propagated further? Mm, I think a lot of people do not understand the value of debt in wealth creation. Yeah. So, agree, agree. Yes, mm. there's a lot of benefit in understanding debt. Uh, there's extremely bad debts like unpaid credit card debts. Mm. Uh, there's also like working debts where you actually take a mortgage and you know, to buy machineries to increase the output, or in the, in the case of like most people understand, uh, taking a mortgage to buy HDB flats, right? Mm-hmm. That's a working debt. And then lastly, I would say is like, the, I'll call it productive debt, la, where you intentionally go into debt to create more wealth. Uh, example for this would be like interest carry trading. So you basically borrow cheap interest and then mm-hmm. you put it into an interest bearing, higher bearing interest place, mm-hmm. which is what I'm doing right now. I'm just borrowing money and a cheaper rate and I'm putting in decentralized finance operation that's paying out more interest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people do not know how to make use of debt to grow more wealth because there's a limited amount of money you can use to go and buy stocks, you know, um, buy unit trust or buy Bitcoin. Eventually you realize, hey, you know, I don't have a lot of working capital. So for you to really grow your wealth, um, some risk must be taken. Get into some form of debt that you know you can control 
and then use it to use it as a leverage lah to build wealth at a much faster rate than most people can. Nice. Yeah, I think I think that's not talked about a lot, so it's a problem. Yes, it's a problem, definitely. So then the the third question. Okay, mm-hmm. last question is uh, which part of your life are you giving additional focus on now? Mm, mm. So when I look at my life, I, I kind of classify my life well-being into three main domains, right? Uh, I call it the physical domain, the intellectual domain, and the emotional domain. Uh, on the intellectual domain, I pretty much do that in my daily work all the time, right? Basically, uh, writing code, thinking about code, code reviewing, like how to do management, etc. And I think what I'm lacking on right now, I think during COVID especially, right? I'm lacking, I'm basically neglecting my physical domain, i.e. I've not been exercising, I've not been eating well. Um, so as a result, I've gained like 10 kg <laughs> mm. over the past one year. So that is really bad. And that kind of affects my emotional domain, right? Because mm. I'm feel feeling lethargic. you, I'm feeling you. Yes. Yes. So <laughs> I think that's something I really want to work on. And I started with basically exercising uh, at least two times a week. Nice. Yeah, and right. I hold myself accountable by building a network of people who wants to achieve the same things. And then we have interesting things like, you know, if you do not achieve the, your exercise this week, you know, you need to pay uh, a fine. Nice. Yeah, so that's something I'm actively working on and I hope to basically be able to run 10km by the end of this uh, this year. Uh, I mean, which is a far fetch because previously I was actually doing tons of Ironman. Um, two years ago, I was doing six Ironmans. Serious? Yeah. Okay. And okay. now I'm like reduced to nothing. It's just getting 10kg out of nowhere. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. And wish you all the best. See you at the next Ironman. See, I yes. feel like I'm going to join, right? <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thanks thank for you. coming on. Love it. Awesome. Okay. Thank you.